0: Well for the, past, uh, for the past two weeks now, we've been looking at what it means to draw near to God 's throne of grace with confidence. That's the phrase that, that we see in Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. And, and it's a reality that is, uh, that is unpacked in different ways um, throughout the book of Hebrews. And so just kind of as, as a way of reminder, uh, two weeks ago. I preached about how that that confident posture at God's throne must be rooted in faith in Jesus. It has to be faith rooted in Jesus. It's not it's not anything rooted in ourselves, things we have or haven't done. Uh, it, it can only be rooted in Jesus and how He, through His death and resurrection, is the the new and living way opened for us to come before God. He's the great high priest through whom we can draw near to God. So we talked that first week about, about being faith-rooted in Jesus. And then last week we talked about how that confident posture is also one which has hope anchored in God's promises. And because God is the great promise keeper, he is a stable, and, and trustworthy anchor for our hope. And now today then, we, we're going to continue talking about this confident posture that we can have before God's throne, and we'll talk about how it is a posture that is also love-driven. So it's faith-rooted, it's hope-anchored, and it's also love-driven. Now, now when we think about love, love is something that, that I think simultaneously captivates us and yet confuses us at the same time as human beings right we, we are we are drawn very strongly toward love but yet it can be difficult for us to define love isn't it but not, now not that it hasn't not that it hasn't been tried this defining love or or, or quantifying love and, and i came across a story that I think is kind of humorous that I think highlights just one of the ways that we've tried to, I guess, grasp love a little bit. So I'm just going to read to you what I found. Um, this says that in the fall of 1937, Ed Kiefer was a senior in the School of Engineering at the University of Toledo. Uh, tall, slender, and bespeckled, Kiefer was the president of the Calculus Club the vice president of the engineering club, and a member of the school's exclusive all-male honor society. He also invented the cupidoscope. The cupidoscope its kind of an interesting name. So built in the school's physics laboratory, the cupidoscope was fashioned from an old radio cabinet, a motor spark coil, and an electrical resistor. To test their bond, a man and a woman would grip electrodes on either side of the cupidoscope and move them toward one another until the woman felt a spark. Of course, the man created it and the woman's going to be the one getting shocked, right? But (laughs) until the woman felt a spark. And it says, "Not not of attraction, but of literal electricity. The higher her tolerance for this mild current the more of a love signal the meter registered. And and a needle on this meter was decorated with hearts in it, and it went all the way, the scale went from no hope to see preacher. All right? So, (laughs) now I hope no couple actually put stock in that machine to predict the future of their relationship together. I mean, to, to try to quantify love by an electrical shock, again, of course, the woman was the one getting shocked, but... That just seems ridiculous, doesn't it, to try and try and get a handle on love in that way? Now, when we talk about drawing near to God's throne with, with a confident posture that is love-driven, it's not about electricity, right? Either real electricity or even emotional electricity. It's not about that. Being love-driven comes from a recognition of God's activity toward us. And then it's also about being filled with the love of God to the point of overflowing beyond that. So that's what we'll really look at this morning. And so first we need to talk about God's activity. We need to talk about God's love shown to us. And when the Bible references God's love toward humans, it's most often seen in two areas. It's most often seen in his calling and in his covenant, over and over again throughout scripture. So so when we think about his calling, throughout the Bible, God calls people to himself. And uh, it's seen in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham. Uh, that calling continues in Exodus when God called his people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, it, uh, God is seen calling prophets throughout the Old Testament. Into the New Testament, we see that Under the new covenant in Jesus, God calls both Jews and Gentile to himself. But but the thing about God's calling is it's not a a cold, detached decision that God makes. God is not presented as one who has no passion or no desire in the matter. And it's really quite the opposite. And so I want to read a passage from both the Old and the New Testament that, that highlight this. And again, uh, we'll notice here how God's love is spoken of in connection with his calling. So the first passage is in Deuteronomy, and it's it's spoken by Moses to the people as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. Moses was reminding the people of who God is and what God has been doing, what he's been accomplishing. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Starting in verse 37, this is what we read. And because he, because God loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day, know therefore today lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above on the earth beneath, there's no other. So when God called the forefathers of the people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it was out of his love for them. That's what what, uh, Moses proclaims here. Because he loved your fathers. And then in addition to that, the, the love and the calling extended to that generation that Moses was speaking to. The generation that had descended from those forefathers. So Abraham, along with Isaac, Jacob, and all those who came after him, were not called by God because of their strength or their wisdom or authority or impressiveness or anything else. God called them because God loved them. His calling was an expression of his love. So we see that in the Old Testament and and we see it in the New Testament as well. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see this as it pertains to the church. So the the book of Ephesians, of course, is a letter written to the church in Ephesus, specifically to those saints who've been brought into the family of God through the work of Jesus on the cross. And listen to how Paul Paul speaks to them, but also speaks about them, starting in verse 3 of chapter 1. with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So in love, God chose us to be adopted as sons and daughters into his family. And that adoption wasn't out of, wasn't out of pity or necessity or, or personal gain or guilt or, or anything like that. It, he called us into his family because he loves us. And then as we are brought into the family of God, we are blessed along with the beloved. We see that at the end of verse 6. And it's capitalized, that word beloved is capitalized. It refers to Jesus. Jesus is the one who, who at his baptism and at his transfiguration, God called his beloved son. We are brought into the same blessing shown to the beloved son. So so the love which God the Father shows toward God the Son extends to us who've been called to be his adopted sons and daughters. So we see God's love in his calling. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. And then the end of verse 6 really provides the segue into the other area where we see God's love most often spoken about. And that's his covenants with mankind. So we see it in his calling, but we see it in his covenants as well. And once again, there's evidence both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So going back to Deuteronomy, this time in chapter 7, we see this. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant And steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And then in the book of Nehemiah, we read this, chapter 1, verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then in Psalm chapter 89, this is God speaking through Ethan, the Ezraite. He says this, chapter 89, verse 28. says, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. And then Daniel's words, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So when all of those descriptions of God, his steadfast love and his covenant faithfulness are spoken of together. They're talked about in the same breath. God's, God's entering and keeping of his covenant with man is a direct display of his steadfast love. So God's calling out to us is an act of love, and so is the relationship with us that he enters into by way of his covenant. Now the covenant continues into the New Testament as well, with the new covenant also. I mean, Jesus himself stated that his death on the cross was the institution of a new covenant. Between God and man. And so he proclaimed this new covenant in the upper room as, as the disciples participated in that first communion service. So, so knowing that Jesus' sacrifice of himself upon the cross is the new covenant between God and man, listen to how it is described in these verses that I'll read. And both of these verses are, are incredibly famous verses, but they both Tie together love and the new covenant. So John 3:16 says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only son. There's the new covenant right there, that He gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then in Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's that new covenant again. Christ dying for us. So just like in the Old Testament, God's steadfast love continues to be connected with his covenant into the New Testament with this new covenant. It, it, it has love there with it as well. Now, now, you may have noticed when we read those verses from uh, the Old Testament about love and covenant, that they spoke of the conditions of it. God keeps his steadfast love and covenant for those who keep his commands. So those were the conditions of the old covenant. God would never be found to be in violation of that covenant. He was always faithful. The problem would arose with the party on the other side of the table. Right? The problem arose with mankind because we are unable to uphold that covenant. But rather than back out, which God had every right to do, and we broke that covenant as mankind, so God could have, could have backed out. But rather than do that, he affirmed his faithful covenant, keeping love, by instituting the new covenant in which he himself upheld humanity's side of things. So in essence, he looked at us across the table, realized that we broke the covenant. We couldn't keep the covenant. So he said, I'll I'll do that for you. I will will keep it for you. So a fully human Jesus perfectly obeyed on our behalf the commands of God, the conditions of the covenant. When we are in him, we are blessed to experience the steadfast love of our covenant-keeping God where we fall short Jesus succeeds he has done it where we deserve to have the covenant canceled because of our sins Jesus upholds it by his actions and really this is where we jump back into the book of Hebrews last week we we spent our time in Hebrews chapter uh, chapters 5 and 6 both we're going to be in chapter 6 again this week, and so I'd encourage you to turn to Hebrews 6. And, and again, if you remember last week, uh, I talked briefly about the section in, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, where, where the writer gave a warning to those who, who maybe looked like followers of Jesus, or, or liked the idea of following Jesus, or hung around followers of Jesus, but, but who weren't truly his disciples. And then when we got to verse 9, I said, okay, now the, the writer is shifting back to talking to the church. Those who are Jesus' disciples. And so let's look at verse 9 again, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now I purposely didn't highlight this word last week, but, but now I am. The, the writer refers to the church as beloved. He pauses what he's saying and inserts that description of them, beloved. I have little doubt that the writer of this letter felt some affection himself toward the church he's writing to. We don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews. Many people think it was Paul. not totally sure on that. But regardless, the, the word isn't referring to the relationship between the writer of the letter and the church. When the church is called beloved... It's not from one human to another. It speaks of the relationship between God and his people. That's why he calls them beloved. They are beloved by God. They are given salvation through Jesus. They're adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters. The way has been opened for them to come before God. I mean, that's why the same word, beloved, is used to describe the church as was used to describe Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1. The reason God can call Jesus beloved and us beloved is because of the work of Christ. We are in Christ in the covenant and we are beloved. Again, it all flows out of the love of God. When it comes to defining the love of God, the Bible makes the job pretty easy. We look at God's calling on us, we look at God's covenant with us, and then we see it. We see it clearly and brightly. God loves us. And when we then ponder and accept God's calling upon us and his covenant with us, it drives us toward God. We talk about love-driven, that's, that's part of what we're talking about. His love drives us confidently toward the throne of grace. Uh, think about a relationship in your life. Could be present, could be past. Just think about a relationship where you are confident that the other person loves you. You know, it could be spouse, parent, child, sibling, friend, it doesn't matter, but, but whoever it is. Think about the security and, and peace you have because of your confidence of their love for you. Now, it doesn't mean that there's never tension, doesn't mean that there's never hardship or anything like that, but but in the midst of those things, love surrounds it all. Think about that relationship. Those are the kinds of relationships that we are drawn toward. We are attracted to those relationships. We want to be in the presence of that person. We look forward to conversations and interactions together with that person who we know with confidence loves us deeply. The love that we experience in those relationships is but a taste of the love of God. It is a taste of it. I mean, those are, those are cloudy windows that reveal what it's like for us to be in God's presence at his throne. I mean, I, I imagine that those who've rejected Jesus will not go willingly before God's throne on the day of judgment. They will not approach him with confidence. There's a reason for such a person to fear the judgment upon sin that they will experience at God's throne. But for those who are in Jesus, who've been called by God, who through Jesus participate in the new covenant, the love of God drives us to the throne. And we want to be there because it is a throne of grace. We want to be there because it is the throne of the one who loves us completely. That's the kind of confident posture that we're talking about this morning, being love-driven to the throne of God. So we ought to be driven to God's throne by God's love, God's love for us. It ought to drive us there. But we also ought to be driven by, by again, we're driven by God's love, we also ought to be driven to love others. We ought to desire to see others draw near to God's throne of grace with confidence as well. So, so staying in Hebrews, there's, there's two places where, where God's love torna, toward us is shown to affect our love toward others. And the first is in chapter 6, where we just were. So we already read verse 9, God called the people beloved. Now look again at what he says in verse 10. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. The writer makes note of the love and the work, or the love and the good deeds which the believers have shown toward one another. And because that work and love are shown for God's name, we know that it is all driven by God's love toward them. They've received God's love. They've been filled by it, and it drives them to love others as well. They are filled by God's love, and so they love one another. the love of God ought to be so impactful upon us that that we desire others to experience it in God's presence too. But we can't force that, right? I mean, we can't force a person into God's love. We can't force them to receive it. Showing God's love to them is an ideal way to to whet someone's appetite, to pique their interest about the love of God. It, it kind of reminds me of, of when I've tried new food in my life. Maybe, maybe you can think back to times where, where you tried something new. Maybe it was a kid growing up. Mom was making something in the kitchen and put a little on a spoon and you know, here, here we need to try this. Or maybe it's just at a restaurant you've not been to before, or one you have been to before, but you tried something new that you've not had before. Um I was thinking this week with it being Christmas time, I, I remember last year I, I tried the, the holiday melt at Breakers for the first time. I don't know if any any I, I know Jacob talked real highly about it and that I, I mean I, I it so it's a sandwich with cranberry sauce on it. I, I'm not one that's ever really been you know craved cranberry sauce been drawn toward it but but Jacob others spoke highly of it so I thought you know okay I'll give it a try in those situations where we're trying a new food for the very first time what's our experience what do we do all right it's it's usually you know if if it's with mom in the kitchen it's usually a little bit on the spoon right here here try this just take a taste you know when I got that holiday melt I sat down at the table I didn't take the biggest bite that I possibly could maybe you do that's not my style all right but I think typically we, we first, we just, we taste a sample of it, right? We just, we kind of, kind of get the idea to see if we like it. And then if we like it, okay, all right, then away we go, right? We dive in. I think with God's love, I, I think we're called to that. Because you and I have experienced God's love in our lives, we're able to call out to others and say, just, just try a taste of it, just just try it. Right? We, we, offer, we offer to those who haven't tasted God's love before, or we offer to those who've tasted God's love before but have maybe forgotten what that's like. And we do that by, by showing them his love. That's how we offer the taste, by loving them with the love of God. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly, right? We're not going to do it perfectly. We're, 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 we're not going to do it to the fullness of God, but when filled by God's love, we can and should offer a taste to those around us. And when we do that, our hope and our prayer is that that small bit of God's love shown toward them will whet their appetite for the full meal. Right? God's love drives us to himself, but it also ought to drive us to love others so that they might come taste the incredible meal offered at God's table. And Jesus talked about this, he talked about this way of life in the upper room, as he was talking about the new covenant, as he was enlightening the disciples to that new covenant, he says says this in John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, You you also are to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean you can hear it, right? Jesus is saying when you're filled with the love of God then then we we show it to others. And when we think about those outside the church, right? Those those who aren't believers, those who've not ever experienced God's love or they've not at least not recognized that they were experiencing God's love. I think we rightly think about showing love to them but there's more to it than that, right? Jesus said in in John 13 that all people will know, and so he's talking about everybody inside or outside the church, all people will know that you are my disciples. All people will know God's love when you love one another, and he's speaking to the disciples loving each other, right? By extension, I would say he's speaking to the church, loving everyone within the church. How we love each other within the church speaks loudly of God's love to those outside the church. That's also offering a taste of God's love. Uh, I already mentioned John three sixteen. First 1 John 3.16 talks about this as well. John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, talking about Jesus, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So he says the same thing there. And John was in that upper room with Jesus. So, what, so what's the display of God's love? Well, it's the new covenant. What's the new covenant? Well, it's Jesus laying down his life for us upon the cross. And how can we give others a taste of that love, a taste of that covenant? By laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters, loving and serving each other. The other thing I wanted to highlight, the other place in Hebrews that I wanted to go this morning is Hebrews chapter 10. And we spent some time here the last couple weeks as well. Um, The first week we talked about uh, verses 19 through 21 in Hebrews 10, about how these facts are given, kind of like a a government proclamation, you know, whereas this, whereas that, talks about who Jesus is, talks about the new covenant Then in verse 22, there was the the resolution that talked about faith. We talked about that the first week. Verse 23, there's a resolution that talks about hope. I I read that in in the benediction last week. And then verses 24 and 25 in Hebrews 10 contain further resolutions from those facts. So, So in light of what those first verses say about the blood of Jesus, God's love shown through the new covenant, Listen to the outflow of it in verses 24 and 25. It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So yet again, being filled with the love of God ought to drive us toward love and good works. We love one another as, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We're, we're motivated to see others experience that love of God as well. But there's another motivation, I think, that's, that's highlighted in, in this verse and back in uh, Hebrews 6 as well. We're, we're told here in chapter 10, stir up one another to love and good works, and we're told to do so all the more as we see the day drawing near. This day that is capitalized again in, in uh, Hebrews 10 the day being talked about is is that day we all stand before God, the day that we quite literally stand at God's throne. on that day all deeds will be laid bare they will be shown for what they are. those who've rejected Jesus as I've already mentioned, will find their sin judged at the throne of God. But for those in Christ, their good deeds will be shown for what they are and, and rewards will be given. Uh, it's interesting to think about this because Paul talks about this day. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3, in 2 Corinthians 5. He talks about it in Romans 14. As we see that day approaching where we are going to stand before the throne of God, we ought to be overflowing with love and good works. We know this benefits those we are serving, right? Hopefully it gives them that taste of God's love and it, and it wets their appetite for it. But we will be rewarded as well. The Bible talks about this. Even back in chapter 6, verse 10 says that uh, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in the serving in serving the saints so even there there's this reference to, to those good deeds not being forgotten now I our good deeds do not allow us to approach the throne of God. We've been saying that the last two weeks. We don't come to salvation because of good deeds. And, and to be honest, when you start talking about the, the, the rewards, crowns, what that's like, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of discussion about what that means, what that's going to look like. But, but neither one of those things are reasons to ignore God's word on this matter. Being filled with God's love drives us to love and serve others, and it is for their own good. But in addition, God will reward that love that is shown toward one another. Again, that is one of the things I'm excited to find out in heaven because I think there's, I mean, God speaks about it. There's there's enough there that, that we know it'll be good. There's not so much there that we know exactly what it's going to be like. But he gives that to us. So, so believers in Jesus, right? We've been talking about coming before God's throne of grace with confidence. We come before him driven by love. Driven by God's love. And again, God's love shown toward us, but we also come before his throne of grace confidently because God's love has filled us and, and it's driven us to love others. Yeah. His, God's love is absolutely incredible. I mean, it just is. It's the basis of all love shown by mankind. It all is originated in God. And we don't need a we don't you know thinking about that cupidoscope at the beginning. We don't we don't need that to determine the strength of God's love for us, right? His calling, His covenant, provide that clear answer for us. And, and I think there's really two main questions to, to ponder in, in light of this as we think about the love of God. And the first is, do I recognize, have I accepted God's love for me, shown through his calling and his covenant? Have I received God's love shown through the death of Jesus on the cross? I think that's the first question that, that we ought to ask ourselves. And then, and then second, after that question, am I allowing God's love to, to overflow from me that it might provide a taste that might draw others toward God, toward his throne? Does, does God's love drive me in my interactions with others? Because of Jesus, and again, it, it, all go, that's not just the book of Hebrews. That's the Bible. It all goes back to Jesus. Because of Jesus, we can draw near God's throne of grace with a confident posture, as we've talked this morning, that is love-driven. Now, that's my hope for all of us, that God's love would drive us so strongly toward himself. Uh, would you stand with me? We're going we're gonna to close this morning. I know it's Christmas season but we're going to sing going to close with a couple of songs that aren't Christmas songs. Uh, if that upsets you there'll be some Christmas songs coming later with the kids but but songs that speak of God's love that that hopefully cause us to ponder his love more and more but but worship him because of his love as well. So so let me pray and then we'll we'll worship in that way. God we're here this morning and I, uh, I am grateful for your love that that your love is vast that it is unconditional God and I'm grateful that you have revealed that to us Your word speaks so clearly of your love I'm thankful for that I'm thankful that you Love me. I'm thankful that you don't love me because of things I've done, tried to do. But that you love me out of your love. God, I, I pray this morning for myself, for all of us, that, that we, would, we would recognize that, receive that, rest in that. And I pray that that would drive us towards you. God, may your love be, be what, what brings us to yourself. And God, I don't want to keep it to myself. I want to give that to others. Would you help us in that? Would you help us to overflow with your love in all that we do? God, as we come before you, as we, as we join our voices together singing, we want to magnify your love. pray that it would be magnified in our own hearts and minds And that that would cause it to be magnified in the lives of others as well. God, would you do that work? We pray this in your name this morning. Amen. (laughs)